Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crip, the crowdfunding podcast. Each week, I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, August 11th, 2014. And for the next three episodes, we'll be taking a little walk down memory lane with some of the coolest projects that you help to fund. Now, on to history. Most people believe that hip-hop started with Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang in 1978. But the real story is different. On this day in history in 1973, hip-hop began in the boogie-down Bronx of New York with DJ Cool Herc performing at his sister's birthday party. Now, can you believe that? I said a hip up first, we're going all the way to Ghana by way of the Virgin Islands to learn about an incredible empowerment project. Hello, good morning. You are welcome to Ghana, the art market. This is where local things are produced for Ghana. So before, I would like you to take a walk with me so you see what we have in the market, like what we do, what they sell, what they create, and whatever. I want to so, welcome Emily Kern into the show. She is the creator behind the Kickstarter project, Darka, the Empowerment Project. And there are some very colorful designs. There are handbags, there are shoes, all sorts of things. And I believe they're imported. So, you know, sometimes that makes it even more special when you hear the word import, even though everything's made in China. But these aren't made in China. These are made in Ghana, West Africa. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Okay. Now, why don't you tell me your story? What are you trying to do on Kickstarter slash Etsy? I lived in Ghana, West Africa for two years and had a shop in the capital city for a portion of that time and got to meet a lot of really talented, exceptional artists there who just don't have access to the international market. And they need more recognition than they're getting. So we're teaming right. up to make a line of handbags and shoes and then also to sell the things that they're already making, which are the backpacks and the totes and some mm. of the other items on the Kickstarter site. We're mentioning a lot of places. I read your bio I believe U.S. born, mm -hmm. college educated, Peace Corps, West Africa, but I believe I'm speaking to you from the U.S. Virgin Islands right now, or at least you're in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. I'm here on St. John, where I have been for about nine months and then have been importing things to the island from Africa. My business partner is Ghanaian. He's still over there. So we found that there's a market here for it. So that's where we're at right now. You're a hard person to hit because you just seem to move around like every nine months or so. <laughs> I like that aspect about you. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. I know that has no bearing on the interview or anything like that, but I just had to get that out there. You talk about recycled materials. So does that mean you're kind of like upcycling, as they would say? You're taking materials that may have been discarded or whatever, and you're turning them into new items to sell and distribute to other people. Yes. What happens when somebody takes their two yards of cloth and gone to a tailor or a seamstress, they get measured, they get a shirt made or a dress made or whatever, and then there's some leftover material. And so what we're doing is gathering up that material and throwing it into its own two-yard piece of fabric that then can be used to make 
products, so nothing is going to waste. Wow. You're putting all that education to use. I, I like that. Man, there's so many things about you I like, and I don't even know you. That's pretty cool. Now, Thank you very much. No problem. Full of compliments today. Doing a project like this, I'm always thinking that it has to be like someone's dream, you know, someone's calling. So I'm thinking this is your dream that you've discovered along the way. How has the Kickstarter community been receptive to your dream? Very, very receptive. I've had a lot of pledges from people that I know who have been following my time in Ghana and kind of this journey that I've been on. And then I've had a lot of responses from people that I don't know at all that have somehow come across the project and are really encouraging and have sent me messages on Kickstarter and um, a couple on Facebook just saying like, hey, I saw your project. Some of them have pledged and some of them have just really given me some strong words of encouragement, which is just as valuable as a pledge. I watched a video and there are just some beautiful clothes on there and I was just struck by the colors and the patterns and all of that and, you know, pretend I'm a novice. Okay, I am a novice. Could you describe a little bit about the culture and just all the patterns? Maybe they mean something. I don't know. Every different fabric that has been made that's currently in cycle has a particular story. And it's anywhere from an encouragement to continue working hard. So if you're really needing some extra strength that day, then you put on your shirt or your dress or your traditional cloth that gives you that extra strength. And there's also fabrics that mean... I'm stronger than my enemies, nobody can touch me type of thing. So if you're really needing an extra kind of protection that day, then you put on that cloth. There's funeral cloth that has its particular meaning. So everything is very purposeful. And if you get to know those meanings, then you can know something about that person just by what they're wearing, which is really, really interesting and beautiful, a beautiful thing about their culture. Hey, I think you need to put that up on the page, you know, like your fight shirt, your celebrity shirt, (laughs) you know, your your thwart evildoers type of handbag, all of that on the page, you know, that's that's what I'm thinking. That's a promotion page that you might have missed because I didn't see that there. I didn't even think about it until you asked me that question. So thank you. I will add that. Well, you know, DJ Grandpa is here to help. Emily, I love what you're doing, your whole empowerment project. I think that's pretty cool. And you're doing the whole global thing. So you're using several different cultures and you're twisting them and bending them and putting them all together and coming out with something. I think that's that's pretty cool. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much. Now on the show, we don't do fashion that often. We don't do fashion enough. But I have such a gentleman. His name is Josela. He's out of Spain. And they have what I would call the most fashionable bicycle helmets I've ever seen. I couldn't even tell they were bicycle helmets, actually. I kind of like would like to get one myself, actually, because they, they look pretty sporty. And I'm not just trying to sell you something. If you watch the video on Kickstarter, you'll see for yourself. Because trust is, is a very big factor. Okay, Josela. Yeah. I'd like to welcome you to the show, man. And, and I'd like for you to tell me about these fashionable bicycle helmets. About, uh, two years and a half ago, there were uh, some friends like um, talking after lunch. And they were wondering why they, the couples didn't wear a helmet with the bike in the city. Right. Uh, here, Valencia is a really complicated traffic city, and bikes go all over the places, and it's kind of dangerous. But they, uh, they found main problems 
difficulties, the two main, uh, the two main questions why people don't wear helmets in the city. Okay. The first one was, where do you put uh, your helmet after the, you use the, uh, the bike? And uh, the second one was, uh, why wearing a sport helmet if you seek a trendy look? So with this issue, they uh, start like, um, thinking about what can they do to, uh, to respond to those questions. So the first one was like make a foldable helmet so you can put it in your backpack. Right. And the second one was make a different cover that you can exchange them. So they become a part of your uh, like a clothing complement for you. Yeah, accessories. The problem was also that you have to mix uh, those uh, two facts, like foldable and trendy with the safety standards. So it took uh, like uh, two years to find a way to mix those three things. And finally, uh, it starts Kloska. I got you. Uh, one other question. Now, in the United States, as far as I understand it, wearing bicycle helmets is the law. Is it the law in Spain? Right now, there's, uh, there's no law that you have to wear a helmet when you ride a bike. There's no law about it. Right now, they are discussing now because they want to implement that, the use of the helmets inside the cities. So you passed all safety standards. Yeah. How does your streamlined safety helmet stand up against the bulky helmets? How have they rated? Actually, um, these helmets, they are made in three parts. Right. So in order to make the heat less stronger for you, the strength of the heat is, is absorbed for the three different parts, not just one. So actually, this uh, helps safety. Oh, I see what you're saying. Because you have this collapsible system, yeah. it takes more of the brunt of the accident. So the, the, the heat is absorbed for the three different parts, not just one. You launched your fashionable helmets in Spain first. And I think of Spain as a very fashionable place. How did the public respond to your helmets? People here like a lot the, the helmets. Because as you say, here, well, here in Spain, there's a lot of designers and we have a really de uh, design culture. And that's a benefit uh, that the, the users are finding in these kind of helmets. So the, the, that's what I said before, that right now the helmet is like a clothing complement right now for you also. It's mm. not just a safety stuff, a safety thing. It's like almost it's all... It's like an accessory, uh, a clothing, clothing complement. I got you. When you get the helmet, does it come with just one color cloth or do you get like different colors that you can swap out per day? When you buy a helmet, it goes with, uh, with one cover. But then you can buy different ones. And also what we want to do is like you know, people can make their own covers. We give you the patents so can make their own at home. And if they don't know how to, to see or how to make it, we put them in contact with people that make this kind of thing. But the helmet goes with one cover. What about care and maintenance? You bring me to that question now because we're talking about fabric and usually bike helmets aren't fabric. You know, they're just plastic or something. So what about general maintenance and washing and, and, you know, care and stuff like that? The helmets, they don't need any special care or something. You just uh, when, you know, when the cover is dirty, you just go into, into the, uh, the washing machine. and that's, Okay. It's like a, was a pair of gloves, for example. Joselle, I wish you and your company, Kloska, the best. And for anyone who's interested in a fashionable bike helmet, you don't hear people say that that often. A fashionable bike helmet? Go to kickstarter.com and type in Kloska, 
That's C-L-O-S-C-A. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll provide links. Josele, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Remember, we are the crowdfunding channel and we cover the globe. Salty dog. Oh, let me be your salty dog and I won't be your man at all. Honey, let me be your salty dog. Hello, Nick. Good. Thanks for calling. I always like checking out Nashville. Cool. Yeah, Nashville's good, man. Just got home. Happy to be here. Yeah, I hear you just moved to town not too long ago. Well, I moved to town in, in January. So, yeah, not too long ago. I've been here almost a year. And how do you like it? Where'd you move there from? I moved here from Boston. I went to school up at Berkeley College of Music, and then I worked there for a year after graduating. And when I moved down here, I moved to just be part of a different music city and sort of pursue my career as a performer. I spent a lot of time on the road. Um, I played with a few different groups this summer, and now I have a full-time touring gig with Nora Jane Struthers in the party line. I checked out your YouTube channel and I saw you playing with a lot of different people. Yeah. Yeah, with some nice bluegrass music there. Thanks, man. You're going to do a solo album of your own now on Kickstarter? I'm going to have a band in on some of it, but it's my first record with, you know, of music of my own that I'm putting my name on the front of. You know, I do a lot of work as a side man, and this is going to be my first release under my name. Last night I dreamt that you and I were back so what's your primary instrument? I saw I saw in a couple of videos it seems like you switched around a little bit. So yeah, my primary instrument is guitar. That's what I grew up playing, and that's uh, that's what I went to college for. That's what I really, really, really love to play. When I'm out on the road, I I get a lot of work playing the bass, and right now with Nora James Group, I'm playing mostly the bass and some guitar. But I want to use this record as a, a chance to sort of showcase my guitar playing and really express myself through that instrument. What does this record mean to you? Like I said, it's sort of the first piece of work that I'm doing where I get to be out front and where I'm playing guitar, and I feel like I've reached a point in my playing in my career where I want to have the piece of work that is my own and that I can look back on and see that, you know, when I... Right when I moved to Nashville and started hitting a good stride, I, I got to go in the studio and showcase some of that work and sort of document it. And I'm getting some of my good friends and some of my favorite musicians to be on it. I'm excited to have them showcased as well. All right, you're going to have to give me a few names, man. You're talking about Nashville's finest. I need to I need to know who these people are, man. You got it. It's uh, this fellow Christian Settlemeyer who's playing the fiddle. He's great. He's played with the Green Cards and the Farewell Drifters, and he plays with a group called Ten String Symphony now. On the banjo is going to be Kyle Tuttle, and Kyle and I met at college, and we hit it off immediately, and we've been playing in groups and traveling together for the past five years or so. Mm -hmm. We get along and play together real well, so I'm excited to have him be a part of it. And then Ashley Cottle is going to be playing the bass. She's a great bass player. She also went to Berkeley, but she went 
little before I went. I met her down here in Nashville. And Ashley is also a great singer and songwriter. And then um, having my buddy from Michigan come down and play the dobro, his name is Mark Lavengood. And he plays with the group called Lindsay Moon and the Flatbellies up there. And I did some touring with them this summer. And Mark is an amazing player and, and just an incredible person to be around. He's got this great energy, really positive attitude. And so I wanted to get him down to be a part of the project. Is this going to be mainly an instrumental bluegrass album, or are you going to be singing on it any? It's about half and half. I got six instrumentals lined up right now that I want to do, and then about five or six songs. A few of them are my own, a few are traditional songs, and um, I might have someone come in, a friend of mine, Rachel Davis, come in and sing a swing song. Do you sing any? Yeah, I'm going to be singing lead on most of the stuff that has vocals. You going to do Tom Dooley or anything like that? The only traditional song that I want to do is a Flat and Scrub song called If I Should Wander Back Tonight. Do you have any expectations for this album? Like you think it's going to do X, Y, Z? I want it to be an album that comes out of, you know, a young acoustic guitar player. There's not too many young acoustic guitar players out there putting out records like this. And so I want it to, to sort of resonate with that flat-picking guitar community and with the bluegrass community. Really what I want is to have a product of my own that I feel really proud of that showcases what I do best. If anyone out there who loves country music, who loves bluegrass music, who loves Nashville, who'd like to hear some of the finest young pickers out there, go to kickstarter.com and check out the debut record with Nashville's finest. Thank you very much for coming on the show, sir. Hey, thanks, DJ Grandpa. Thanks for calling, man. Every day hangs about over my side of the mountain. The other side is sunny all the time. For several years, we saw the need for a product that would provide people with a reliable light source and a renewable, portable battery for charging cell phones. From there, we came up with the idea for the Zuba. Whether used in the tropics of Africa or snow-capped mountains across the globe, Zuva is a solar-powered, super-bright LED flashlight. Besides Hello, sir. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. You look a lot like the picture. Thank you. I hope so. I can call you Lauren, let's hope. That's right. And I call you DJ? You can call me anything you want, actually. I'll call you DJ. Are you in D.C., Mozambique, Utah, what? I can't get a grasp on you. Well, have been in all of those places, currently in Utah. I'm actually in the city of Washington in the state of Utah. You have the Zuva, the Lighting a Sustainable World. You're on Indiegogo, and I'm kind of new to Indiegogo. I'm trying this outreach program, and you do missions work, I believe. I'm guessing, though, so I believe you know what outreach is all about. Absolutely. In your outreach program, because to me that's a kind of different way of life, you know, doing these uh, what you call missions work and stuff. Could you tell me a little bit about it? My wife and I lived for four and a half years in Mozambique and Angola, that's down in the southern part of Africa, borders South Africa, in fact. They're both Portuguese-speaking countries, and we were there doing humanitarian work. Remember, Lauren, it's never about me. It's always about you and your wife, man. Okay. So why don't you tell me about the Zuva, man? Cool name for the sustainable, rechargeable LED flashlight. So 
My wife and I have actually been designing and manufacturing flashlights for about 10 years, but never under our own name. We always have someone else who we put their brand on it. This is the first time we've ever created our own product from the ground up and gone through the advertising process with it also. And it's actually our best product. It's powered either by a solar panel, which what we do with it, we put it in the window of our house in a bright window, and it just charges all day long. And so it's always got a full charge. Even if I use it during the day, if I use it at night, put it back in the window and it recharges. However, if you really need a quick charge, the end cap comes off. And when you pull it off, you can see that it's got two USB ports in it. It's got a micro USB port that you can charge the lithium ion batteries right through your wall outlet, through your car, through your computer, whatever. But you can also use the Zuva not just as a bright light, and it is very bright. Yeah, you just blinded me, man. With, with, you just blinded me with science. <laughs> so I didn't mean it to shine it right at the uh, camera. Anyway, it's a very bright LED, but also you can use it to charge your cell phone. So if you're out somewhere, your cell phone's just about to die, you just plug it into your cell phone and, and there you go. You can get a full charge. It's compact. You can put it right in your pocket. It's only six inches long, weighs less than five ounces. Right. Anyway, we designed it so that it would be rugged, durable. It's not waterproof. You can't go scuba diving with it. But uh, you can definitely leave it out in the rain, take a shower with it, anything like that, and it'll be just fine. I've been very selfish. I realize that now because your history with your family is about your missions work also. When you put this light together, you must have had a whole different perspective, not, not just the United States. I'm, I'm thinking about myself. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about Americans, but you must have also had the developing world in mind when you created this light. Absolutely. When we were living over in Mozambique, one of the things that we noticed is that everybody's got a cell phone. The, the poorest people have cell phones. Cell phones are very cheap. Used cell phones are very cheap. And the way the phone system works in Mozambique, only the person initiating the phone call pays for the phone call. So if people call you, you never pay anything for cell phone usage. Oh, okay. So even very poor people have cell phones. The problem is they have a cell phone, but they have no way to charge it. And so they're always trying to find some way to charge it or their battery goes dead and, and it's dead for three or four days. Meanwhile, you're trying to contact them and you can't because, well, their cell phone's dead and with no way to charge it. And so we thought, wouldn't it be a great idea if we could create something? One thing that they do have in abundance in Mozambique is sunlight. Yeah. And so wouldn't it be great if we could create a, something that could charge up batteries and then charge up their cell phone when they need it? Another problem, though, is because of the lack of electricity, nobody has lighting. It's dark. Just trying to find your way, as, as soon as the sun goes down, it is very dark, unless there's a full moon. Right. I've been walking around the Mozambique rural areas after dark, and boy, you almost trip over everything. There just aren't street lights, just no lights at all, mostly. 
So this would solve a problem for them. You know, it sounds like a luxury to be able to charge a cell phone, but nowadays, even in, in places like Mozambique, which is a very poor country, cell phones are a necessity. That's how you get in touch with people. Somebody who lives five miles away from you, they really don't have the money to uh, catch a bus to go see them. So what they do is text each other or from midnight till six in the morning, phone calls are free. So they end up calling at night and getting in touch with people. My last short question, would this flashlight, the Zuva, would it be economical for someone in the developing world to be able to purchase one? Absolutely. Right now, we're working with a charitable organization called Care for Life. In fact, we uh, ran into them when we were over in Mozambique. In fact, what we're doing right now, we're giving, for every four flashlights that are purchased, we're giving one to Care for Life. They don't hand them out. They give them as rewards for completing their programs that they offer over in Mozambique. But Care for Life is also very interested in marketing the flashlight over there anywhere from 10 to $12 per light in Mozambique, which is just barely above cost. At that price, it actually would be very affordable for Mozambicans to buy it. For anyone out there, if you're on Indiegogo, or if you have the urge to go to Indiegogo, check out the Zuva, a sustainable flashlight that I believe is for everyone. DJ Grandpa is all about renewables, so don't try and test me or anything like that. And don't say I'm not about renewables because I'll call you on it. And if you can't find the Zuva, Z-U-V-A, on Indiegogo, always go to DJGrandpa.com or we will have links for Lauren and his family business. I'm Mark Aitken, and I'm the producer and director of a new documentary called Dead When I Got Here. Uh, this film started back in 2011. Uh, I was reading this book by a London-based writer called Ed Vulliami, which is where I'm based. And this book's all about the war going along the frontier between the US and Mexico. Uh, and in this book, he talks about a mental asylum run by its own patients, which immediately interested me. Mark Aiken, um, following that, filmmaker of Dead When I Got There, a very cool title, by the way. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. Tell me about the film with the very interesting title. Okay, Dead When I Got Here started with me 2011. I kept reading about Mexico, and, and I, I did wonder how people managed to live there with all that violence and killing going on. Yeah, it's all over the news. And then everybody I spoke to said, don't go to Mexico with a camera. They shoot people with cameras. Don't do it. I'm not one of these uh, people who hunts down danger or anything. And then, But I kept reading about it, and then I came across this uh, mental asylum run by its own patients. I found the email of the guy who founded the place, and he said, just come down. You know, I'll meet you at the airport. You can come here. So this guy called El Pastor Galvan, met me at the airport, and he said, where are you staying? I said, well, I don't know. Can I stay at the asylum? And he said, no problem. So I was there for two weeks with a camera, and there's not much to do there if you're not working. So I just got stuck in, and every morning I got up right. at dawn and started shooting, you know. And it was the most exhilarating filming experience, maybe the most exhilarating experience full stop that I've ever had in my life, because 
you're looking at 120 people living in a very makeshift asylum in the desert on the edge of Juarez. And these people are, are very raw. They're very, they're very naked emotionally. So for a filmmaker, they're incredible subjects because they don't have the normal inhibitions that, that other people have, you know. Right, right. But along with that comes quite a lot of responsibility because the whole time you're thinking, well, is this ethically right? How am I going to explain this to anybody? Because this is such a strange place. And that whole thing kept coming back to me. How am I going to explain this? What's the context? And I think that's what's really shaped the direction of the film over the last two years is that I really had to try and establish a context for this place because rather than pity these people, which I think a lot of, a lot of liberals would do, in fact, I think we can only admire them and be humbled by them because they've all escaped what is the most violent city in the world out of a war zone. And they look after each other and, you know, as, as best they can. It's a pretty messed up place, you know. I mean, it's people die all the time. and We're talking about Bogota, right? No, 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 we're talking about the asylum. I mean, which city? Juarez in Mexico. Juarez, okay, all right. It is the sort of epicenter of the conduit of all the drugs that flow from south to north and all the weapons that flow from north to south. And you throw drugs into that equation, you can imagine it's, it's quite a melting pot for one big mess. So we're talking about war-torn lives, essentially. What they all have in common is they're all recovering from one trauma or another, and the other thing they have in common is that if they weren't there, they would all be dead because you cannot survive on the streets in such a violent city uh, where people kill with impunity. So if you're on the street, you don't last very long. How did you come up with the name Dead When I Got There? I mean, what does that mean? That is a quote from the main character in the film because what I discovered after the first shoot was that I realised I needed a guide, really, but the guide had to come from inside. I, I, could, I didn't really want an outsider sort of right. doing a narration, telling the audience how it was in this place. And then I found this guy, um, Josue Rosales, who, I mean, my Spanish isn't great, so part of the reason I was attracted to him because his English was very good, and he, he's, he's, he speaks in this, with this great Chicano accent, and he, it's because he, he lived in L.A. for a number of years, and when he was 14, he... He jumped a train right. from Mexico, ended up in L.A. and ended up in a place called Azusa and hanging out with lots of gangs. And then he ended up getting involved in drugs and murder and all sorts of stuff. And he ended up in San Quentin doing time with Charles Manson. Wow, the big house. And eventually he got deported, ended up on the streets of Juarez again. By then he'd had a 30-year heroin addict, uh, heroin habit, so he was a mess. And he reached a point where he couldn't even walk anymore. He got dumped at the asylum, as most people do. He got stretched in, and he had gangrene in his arm, and his fingers were falling off. And I mean, he, he was really near death. So. Yeah, that's bad. And after 30 years of self-destruction, Josue managed to somehow find a new lease of life, a new will to live. He would say it's down to Jesus. Maybe it is. I don't know. But right. I'd like to give him the credit for it rather than anybody else because he did find a will to live. And he also found it in himself to to want to help people. And, you know, for a junkie of 30 years, you know, they don't go around helping people. All they care about is themselves. It's a very selfish habit. So right. he really did find something in himself that wasn't there before. No, in your movie... And you've stated that you had to be very careful in the way that you portrayed 
this whole ordeal or this whole experience that you had, I mean, has he become the sympathetic character in your film? We have become friends. And uh, I, I've never heard him once defend any of his actions. But what happened, and this is where the story becomes quite miraculous, because for me it was enough to have open access to a mental asylum like this. But Josue said to me that, I said to him, so is this the end of the line? You know, is, is, is he just going to stay at the asylum, carry on working, and, and that's that? And he said, well, he's not so sure, but one thing he'd like to do is to see his daughter again. Because, and his, I said, well, where does she live? And he said, well, somewhere in California, but I don't know where. And he asked me to look for her, and I said, well, California's a big place, you know. Then this was last April 2012, so I put it, a five-minute trailer on YouTube. And then in July, I got an email from his daughter saying, what's my father doing in a mental asylum? I've been told he was dead and I haven't seen him for 22 years. You know, I still get a shiver when I, when I say that because uh, I straight away got on the phone to Josue and I said, you're not going to believe this, but your daughter's found my bit of film and, and, you know, she wants to speak to you. So it took me about six months, but then I got them together and it was quite a complicated arrangement, but we got them to meet in Tijuana because he can't go back to the States. She was too scared of going to Juarez, so we, we oh. found this, this place. She lives in L.A., and we filmed it. So I'm not a great sort of Christian believer in redemption, and I know it's something that's very much part of our culture that people can redeem themselves no matter what they've done. But I think that this story offers some kind of redemption. It offers some hope that no matter what you've done, you can actually crawl out of the sewer and you can better yourself. It doesn't make you an angel, but I think you can change. And I think this, this man is really evidence of that, you know. So you do believe people can change? Yeah. Have you always believed that? Um, well, I, I, Filmmakers I, I, become pretty jaded at times, uh, especially I a doc. Swing, I swing from one to the other, really. And I, okay. and I, on a personal level as well, but I... I think of the thing about people changing. I think if you believe you can't change, I think then it becomes problematic if you want to hope for anything. Because I think hope generally involves some kind of change of the status quo, you know. In Spanish, the word espero, espera, is to wait, but it also is to hope. And I love the fact that they have the same word for the two things, because waiting always involves some kind of change, and, and so does hope. I hope that you do reach minimum funding because, like I said, it was just very compelling and I liked the voicing and, and the pace that you took it at and, and just to see this character that um, that seemed pretty gnarled up as far as what he's been through in life and uh, the reunion or the reuniting with his daughter. So if anybody is interested in a doc like this, and like I said, it's a pretty compelling doc, well, it's not the doc yet, but the, the trailer on Kickstarter about Dead When I Got Here. Uh, go to kickstarter.com, type in Dead When I Got Here, or you can look it up by Mark Aiken. And if you can't find it there, we'll have links on djgrandpa.com. Mr. Aiken, thanks for coming on the show and sharing. I'd like to thank all our guests. I'd also like to thank our listeners. Each week, we couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams and to my mentor, The Mumbler, for providing music to DJ Grandpa's crib. Thanks to Jeffrey Banks, Bertram Zeke, and Zach Samile, our assistant editors. Until next week, so say we all.
The homepage for DJ Grandpa's crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is A.F. Rupert.